Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. No immediate agreements coming out of the talks between Russia and Ukraine. Inside the country, Ukrainian forces still hold major cities despite street fighting. President Biden today working with allies planning their next move on Russia. The administration has now cut ties with Russia's central bank and Congress is preparing to spend billions to support Ukraine. We bring you Washington's latest plan of action. Russians brace for economic hardship as the Russian ruble plunges and Western sanctions continue to grow. A judge strikes down a high school admissions policy. That rule shrunk the number of Asian American students at one of the nation's top public schools. The judge says they were discriminated against. The People's Convoy is halfway through the U.S. on its way to D.C. and thousands of people along the way are showing support for the truckers. The city with one of the strictest vaccine mandates in the U.S. might soon ease up as the number of new cases continues to go down. Russia and Ukraine finished their first round of talks, but there aren't any immediate agreements. They say they could be meeting again for a second round of talks in the coming days. And TD's Allison Lee has the latest. Ukrainian and Russian delegates met for five hours at the border between Ukraine and Belarus on day five of the war. The goal was to discuss a ceasefire, but they didn't reach any immediate agreements. The parties have determined several priority topics on which certain decisions have been envisioned. The parties are returning to their capitals to have the possibility to implement these decisions. The two sides say they are willing to meet again, and the second round of talks will take place on the border between Poland and Belarus in the coming days. We went over all the agenda aspects, found some points to project a mutual stance upon, and most importantly, we agreed to continue with the negotiation process. Ukrainian troops have been putting up a strong resistance, blocking Russians from taking Kyiv over the weekend. Officials imposed a 39-hour curfew to keep people off the streets until Monday morning. The UK's defense ministry says Russia advances have been slowed. Street fighting also broke out in Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, on Sunday. But Ukraine so far still controls the major cities. We have withstood and successfully fended off the enemy's attack. Fighting continues in many cities and districts of our country. On Sunday, Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered Russia's nuclear deterrent forces to be put on high alert. And on Monday, the Ukrainian president signed an application for his country to join the European Union. He calls on the EU to admit Ukraine immediately using a special procedure. Meanwhile, also on Monday, Turkey moved to block Russian warships from sailing through the Black Sea. Montreux. We have decided to use the authority given to our country by the Montreux Convention regarding maritime traffic in the Straits in a way that will prevent the crisis from escalating. Estimates say that half a million Ukrainians have fled the country since the war began and that over 300 civilians have been killed. Allison Lee, NTD News. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Sunday put Russia's nuclear forces on high alert, as we've just heard. The move prompted President Biden today to talk with allies on an action plan. And as the situation continues to escalate, the U.S. deals another blow to Russia's already crippled economy. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more. Russia's escalation has prompted the U.S. to go further, now banning transactions with Russia's central bank, cutting them off from the U.S. dollar. 
Uh, the ruble has fallen uh, about 20%, uh, and it's trading at its weakest level ever. The Russian stock market uh, was kept closed today. I understand it will be kept closed, uh, closed tomorrow. And Russia's army may be bolstered by Belarus forces, so the U.S. has now closed its embassy in Belarus. Since the war broke out, the U.S. has given hundreds of millions of dollars to support Ukraine. President Biden has committed more security assistance to Ukraine over the past year than the United States has provided at any other time in history. But the White House has asked Congress to approve more money for Ukraine. And the White House has requested that Congress quickly passes emergency funding for Ukraine, three and a half billion Biden's asking to support the Pentagon and the U.S. military. Another three billion would go to support Ukraine's humanitarian and security needs. Speaker Pelosi today says that Congress is standing by ready to pass as much economic support that Ukraine may need. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weisskopf, NTD News. The EU foreign policy chief says the European Union has broken a taboo by agreeing to jointly buy and distribute weapons to Ukraine. Member states are pledging to provide a range of defensive arms, from missiles to machine guns. Here's more from NTD's Joy Dugood. EU defense ministers met on Monday to coordinate deliveries of arms to help Ukraine fend off the Russian invasion. The 27-member bloc decided to jointly pay over £370 million for weapons to Kiev. Its foreign policy chief calls this move a breaking of a taboo. The taboo that the European Union cannot use their resources to provide arms to a country who is being aggressed by other. Yes, they are unprecedented times. Because the war is back in our borders, and that's why it is a defining moment for the European history. EU members have pledged to provide a range of arms to Ukraine. Among them are hundreds of Stinger missiles used to shoot down helicopters and warplanes, but also anti-tank weapons, drones, assault rifles, mortars, machine guns and munitions. Poland has agreed to act as a hub to distribute the arms. The Kremlin called the EU's move dangerous and destabilizing. Its spokesperson said it shows that Moscow was right to want to demilitarize its neighbor. Joy Dugid, NTD News. And back in the U.S., New York's Governor Kathy Hochul has signed an executive order banning the state from doing business with Russian companies. New York is home to the largest Ukrainian population in the U.S. As a, the 10th uh, largest economy in the world, larger than Russia, we realize unique power that we have to join President Biden in economic sanctions. We are no longer going to allow New York state business to be transacted with Russian entities. Hochul says their state will review its finances. It plans to make sure it's not investing in Russian companies. That includes companies with headquarters in Russia and state-sponsored entities. She says New York condemns the unprovoked attacks from Russia. And panic around the swift exclusion and other financial sanctions have contributed to Russia's currency, the ruble, suffering its worst single-day drop in recorded history. Russia kept its stock market closed today out of fear it could crash. The economic toll of war, it seems, is already being felt by the Russian people. NTD's Faye Quarter has more.
Countries are strengthening sanctions against Russia. Companies are pulling out and investors are leaving. The European Central Bank says Russian banks face collapse as Russian citizens line up to withdraw money. I lost about a third of my money because I am involved in the stock market, and I still can't. How this will end up, the future will be worse, I understand. I don't know. My nerves are on edge for a third day. What can I say? Everything is very bad, and I can't imagine what is next. The sanctions will affect normal people, regular citizens. In Russia, things will be sad, and we will lag behind the rest of the civilized world, not just by two steps, but rather seriously. Unfortunately, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. The Russian ruble plunged by over 20 percent Friday, one of the largest single-day drops in history. Outside markets are reluctant to trade the currency. This definitely will be the end of Putin because uh, his own people are understanding that they are not just, you know, now distant players. It's actually came to their home. Yes, they're not being, the rockets are not being fired at their cities but they're becoming poorer every day. Roman Sharameta is the founding director of American University Kyiv and an economics professor at Case Western Reserve University. Sharameta left Ukraine one day before Russia invaded and still has friends and family in the country. The Russian economy is crashing and crashing more than ever in its own history. The stocks for major Russian companies have, uh, I mean, you cut at least half at least half. Imagine that. I mean, it's not even compares, compared to the uh, financial crisis of 2008 or COVID. I mean, they're really, these companies are completely devalued. And people are, the Western, in, the investors are trying to pull out of those companies. What is Russia trying to do? They're just trying to hold that. So they're basically banning the trade and the sale of these stocks in these companies. And that's what Russia is trying to do. They basically are trying to uh, the stop the the foreign investors from pulling money out of Russia. Not even talking about there is no new money coming in. In response to the economic shock, Putin has banned Russians from sending money to bank accounts abroad, forced exporters to convert 80 percent of their revenues into rubles, and raised the benchmark interest rate to 20 percent from 9 percent. Faye Quarter, NTD News. One reason people are taking their money out of Russian banks and sending it abroad is because Western nations like the U.S. and Canada are set to restrict Russia's access to the SWIFT system. It's going to remove some Russian banks from the network, all but severing them from the global financial system. So what exactly is SWIFT and why is it important? NTD's Phil Zoe explains. The U.S., Canada and Europe are planning to cut Russia out of the SWIFT banking system. So the SWIFT system is a system that allows money to be transferred uh, around the world cross borders. It's basically secure messaging between banks for transferring funds. Think of it as Gmail or text messaging, but for banks. You have over 11,000 financial institutions all around the world sending secure messages and payment orders to each other. Over 200 countries use the SWIFT system. It allows banks to send money from one country to another and large financial institutions such as insurance companies and other companies to move money from one country to another, from one currency to another currency. It doesn't move money around, 
but those secure messages are incredibly important and it really is the plumbing of banking you know something that you never see but believe me when you don't have it you miss it. A swift ban would make imports and exports to Russia nearly impossible. It will have a much larger effect on the consumers in Russia. Individuals and companies wanting to transfer money over to Russian banks will not be able to do so, and this will have very detrimental consequences. If the ban happens, Russia may be isolated and forced to look inwards to sustain itself and the economy. Phil Zhou, NTD News. And the economic pain continues. Energy giants BP and Shell join a growing list of companies looking to exit Russia. Shell said it would exit all its Russian operations. And BP, Russia's biggest foreign investor, said it would abandon its stake in Russian oil firm Rosneft. BP says that'll cost it around $25 billion, cutting its oil and gas reserves in half and production by a third. Russian airlines may also struggle to hold on to their planes. Aircap, the world's biggest aircraft owner, says it'll terminate leases with carriers in the country. Norway's sovereign wealth fund, the world's largest, will also divest its Russian assets, worth about $2.8 billion. And the board overseeing one of the country's top public schools has suffered a defeat in court. A judge has ruled against their new admissions policy, saying it's designed to benefit black and Hispanic students, but discriminate against Asian Americans. NTD's Miguel Moreno has that story. Virginia's Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, known as TJ, is one of the nation's top public schools. Seats there are prized, limited, and must be earned. Over the years, the number of Asian American students admitted to TJ was steady until the class of 2025. That number shrunk. The school board's new admissions policy drove that number down, but a federal judge um, ruled it against it. It tells Fairfax County Public Schools that they can no longer use their discriminatory admissions policy for Thomas Jefferson High School. They've got to go back to the drawing board. Erin Wilcox is an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation. Her legal organization represented the plaintiff, Coalition for TJ, According to the judge, statements made by school officials confirm that the new policy was designed to bring about racial balance at TJ by increasing black and Hispanic enrollment, which would, by necessity, decrease the representation of Asian Americans at TJ. What about the policy reduced the number of Asian American students at TJ? It did that in two ways. Um, the first was that the policy limited admission to TJ to 1.5% of each middle school in Fairfax County. Um, and so some middle schools, of course, send a lot of kids to TJ. Sometimes like 85 kids at, in a middle school class would go to TJ every year. Some middle schools hardly send any children. Um, and so by putting only a 1.5% cap on middle schools, uh, that drastically reduced the number of kids who could get in, regardless of how qualified they were. Wilcox says that some also had to compete against students who received admission bonus points for going to middle schools underrepresented at TJ. In a statement to NTD News, the school board attorney said, in part, that they don't believe that the judge's ruling is supported by law and will consider asking a federal appeals court to review the decision. He also said the new process is blind to race, gender, and national origin and gives the most talented students from every middle school a seat at TJ. 
About a month ago, the highest court in the land agreed to hear a similar case. Asian American families are suing Harvard University over its admissions policies. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. President Joe Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, and Vice President Kamala Harris hosted a Black History Month event at the White House on Monday. They invited Congressional Black Caucus, community organizers, and faith leaders. The event comes just days after Biden nominated the first black woman to the Supreme Court. I know progress can be slow and frustrating, but I also know it's possible. If we work together, if we keep the faith, if we remember the changes and charges that were passed down to us from all those who came before us, many sitting in this room right now. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, U.N. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and Chair of Biden's Council of Economic Advisers, Cecilia Rouse, were among top officials in attendance. Biden hit upon voting rights, equity and distribution of pandemic resources, health care, and police reform as some areas he's focused on. And the State of the Union is tomorrow, tomorrow night, in fact. What will Biden talk about? And what does the heightened security around the Capitol look like? NTD's Iris Tao brings us the details. It's been exactly 10 months since President Biden's first address to Congress. We're working again, dreaming again, discovering again. And now he's got quite a few challenges to address in his first official State of the Union Tuesday night. The White House says Biden will announce a new plan to tackle rising prices. He will talk about inflation in his speech. Of course, that is a huge issue on the minds of Americans. Also to be touted is his infrastructure plan. And the Washington Post reports that Biden's speech has been revised to address the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, as several trucker convoys are set to arrive in Washington this week, officials are ramping up security. And the area is closed. We're again seeing these seven-foot black metal fences up around the Capitol. They've just been reinstalled and are the same barrier that stayed here for months after January 6 last year. The Capitol Police chief says the fencing is set up in light of potential demonstrations. And besides the 700 National Guard troops activated in D.C. for traffic control, some unexpected guests are spotted here Monday morning. The NYPD confirmed with NTD that about 100 NYPD officers have been sent to D.C. upon request by the Capitol Police. And an NYPD officer now in D.C. told NTD that he and the other officers were officially sworn in as Capitol Police for this. But they're not sure exactly how long they will stay here. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And both the Capitol and the White House are ditching their mask mandates just in time for Biden's speech. The move comes after a recent shift in guidance from the CDC. It will also avoid the optics of masked lawmakers gathered for the event two years into the pandemic. And still to come, the People's Convoy has already driven halfway through America on its way to D.C. One of the most recent stops was Amarillo, Texas. Thousands of people from towns along the way came out to show support for the truckers. And the city with one of the strictest vaccine mandates in the U.S. might soon ease up as the number of new cases continues to go down. That and more here on NTD News.
People's Convoy is halfway through America now, on its way to Washington, D.C. Over the weekend, the convoy stopped in Amarillo, Texas. The people in the convoy said they were overwhelmed with the show of support from the locals. NTD's Jason Perry was there. On the way here, was, which was about an hour drive, we could see supporters on both sides of the highways with American flags and on the top of bridges. And the closer we got to here in Amarillo, the more supporters came out. The attorney for the People's Convoy says she has been amazed along the way. You guys did Texas proud. You did it at Texas outsize. We hit the border in New Mexico, coming through Vega, and there were people. It looked like the Rose Parade, not just on the overpasses, but lining both sides of the street, little kids, grandparents, and everybody in between wishing us well. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thousands of supporters were scattered along the roads and bridges along the highway. Another thing, the amount of people that are on the sides of the roads, you know, thousands getting up here in these overpasses, that's the touching part. You know, those people aren't there because they like trucks. They like truckers. They're there because they are sick and tired of the way this country is being raped and pillaged by a certain few. Okay, there's people on the side of the bridge, and there might be two or three of them, but then you go through a, a big city, and there's 100, 200, 300 on every single bridge. And so, but the fact is, is that every single place we go through, we see people that are supporting this, and that's that was very unexpected for me. This is fantastic being in Amarillo, Texas and just seeing the outpouring of support from, from locals and what we've seen all the way from California uh, throughout very sparsely populated areas. It seems like everybody's out on the road cheering us on. The organizer of the People's Convoy thanked the Canadian truckers for what they started and he reminded everyone that some of them are still in jail. Texas, you literally made me cry coming into your state. I, our entire team was crying. I saw these drivers tearing up. It has been absolutely amazing. And I, I, I always wanted to say this, so I'm going to say it. God bless Texas! People showed support in many ways. One truck driver who could not make the whole trip helped serve over 30 gallons of free coffee during the stop. I hope this, seeing this, helps every American and every person in the world know that we can come together and it doesn't just have to be truckers. It doesn't matter if you support everything that they're standing for right now, but we're people coming together trying to unify everybody and stand up for our rights. And that's what everybody can do. All you got to do is get up off your butt and do it. The People's Convoy have just finished their meet and greet with everyone here in Amarillo, Texas. There's been a lot of love and support along the way. And now that it's over, you can see everyone is now in line, about to get back in the convoy. And the next stop is Elk City, Oklahoma. Jason Perry, NCD News, Texas. About 250 million free COVID tests are still unclaimed. That's half the amount the Biden administration put aside for the program. But people are feeling less urgency to test now that virus cases are plummeting. The White House test giveaway began in January. On the first day, covidtests.gov received over 45 million orders. Now there's fewer than 100,000 orders a day for the packages of four free rapid tests per household. That Now that the number is way down, it's unclear what will happen to the White House giveaway program. 
they may allow repeat orders. And as the number of new COVID cases goes down in cities across the U.S., some areas are easing up on restrictions. New York City has one of the strictest vaccine mandates in the country, but that could change soon. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. If you want to sit indoors for some wings, for example, you have to be vaccinated here in New York City. The key to NYC mandates proof of vaccination for almost all indoor settings, like cinemas and sport events. But now, the mayor says he might lift that restriction soon. Mayor Adams said in a statement that New York City's numbers continue to go down day after day. So as long as COVID indicators show a low level of risk and we see no surprises this week, the mandate will be lifted next Monday. I think it's about time. <laughs> I think it will be very good. People can't go around and do certain things because of the vaccine. So now people could come out more and get around. Both New York City and New York State are also ditching the mask mandate for school children within the next week. Right now, New York City is seeing a seven-day average of around 600 cases every day, which is much lower than the daily average of 40,000 cases we saw at the beginning of January. Are you still worried about COVID at this point? Uh, not really. Key to NYC isn't the city's only vaccine mandate. You also have to be vaccinated to work for all private and public companies. The mayor says that that mandate will stay in place. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. New York City subways can be a dangerous place for a variety of reasons, including people getting pushed onto the tracks. But in this case, police are looking for a suspect who struck an innocent bystander with something else quite unusual. NTD's Dave Martin has more. In this clip, you can see a man with a bag in his hand approach a lady sitting on a subway station bench. He then suddenly turns and strikes her face with the bag and the contents of it, which NYPD says was human feces. He then appears to wipe the rest of it on the back of her head before walking away. The man then fled in an unknown direction and is still at large. The attack happened last Monday on the southbound platform of the East 241st Street subway station in the Bronx. This attack happened just days before 57-year-old Nina Rothschild was bludgeoned with a hammer while walking down the steps of the Queens Plaza EMNR subway station. Rothschild is a New York City healthcare worker. She had just left work late Thursday night when the alleged assailant came up behind her on the stairs and kicked her in the back in what looks to be an attempt to make her fall. He then appears to strike her head multiple times with a hammer before grabbing her purse and running off. In this case, though, police have announced they've arrested 57-year-old William Blunt and charged him with attempted murder, assault and robbery. For her part, Rothschild suffered a fractured skull and head lacerations and is listed in critical condition at NY's Wild Cornell Med Center. Dave Martin, Antini News, New York. Coming up, California Border Protection officers recently seized over 1,000 pounds of narcotics at the state's southern border. Officers say the drugs were cleverly disguised as onions. And in Northern California, federal authorities have a plan to get rid of the four dams on one of the largest rivers in the state. They said it will benefit the environment, particularly salmon populations. TD will bring you more when we return.
now to the West Coast. Smuggling narcotics across the nation's southern border is nothing new, but what is new is how drugs are disguised. The latest trick of all things is onions. Here's what U.S. Customs and Border Protection uncovered. U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, officers seized approximately $2.9 million worth of methamphetamine hidden in small packages within a shipment of onions last Sunday. CBP announced that federal officers arrested an unnamed 46-year-old Mexican citizen at the Otay Mesa Port of Entry commercial vehicle facility. Officers say the man was driving a tractor trailer containing a large shipment of what appeared to be onions. During the examination, one of the agency's detector dogs alerted officers who discovered 1,197 packages of meth, roughly 1,336 pounds, according to CBP. The packages of meth were shaped into small globes with a white covering designed to blend in with the onions they were hidden with. Sidney Aki, CBP Director of Field Operations in San Diego, said, This was not only a clever attempt to try and smuggle in narcotics, one I haven't seen before, but also time-consuming to wrap narcotics into these small packages designed to look like onions. The man has been turned over to the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement for further arrangement. Authorities are planning to remove four massive dams in Northern California as concerns rise about their environmental impact, particularly on fish. NTD's Eileen Ang hears from the head of the project about the benefits bringing the dams down and moving California to a more natural state. The removal is poised for four dams along the Klamath River. The goal is to restore one of the state's native populations, migratory salmon. The announcement came in an environmental impact statement draft from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Regulators wrote that moving ahead with the proposal would maximize benefits to salmon fisheries important to local tribes and restore the landscape to a more natural state. In 2020, Oregon and California agreed to be equal partners in the demolition with a nonprofit entity called the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, which will oversee the project. The reservoirs behind the dams store water for hydroelectric generation, but the water warms up in the summer and produces conditions that create bad water quality, namely uh, algae blooms and other conditions that lead to disease and, and other impaired water quality circumstances. So fish passage is a primary objective and water quality improvements is a secondary objective. That really is why uh, the project is being undertaken. The aging dams were built before current environmental regulations. It cut the 253-mile-long river in half for migrating salmon, whose numbers have plummeted. Under federal and California law, coho salmon are listed as threatened and their population has fallen by anywhere from 52% to 95%. Spring Chinook salmon, once the Klamath Basin's largest run, have dwindled by 98%. How does the uh, decrease in population of the fish affect us as you know, people or the tribes around them? Yeah, particularly the tribes. Of course, a number of the tribes in the Klamath River Basin are historically salmon dependent. They will describe themselves as river people and salmon people. And we can't overstate uh, the significance of salmon to their way of life. Uh, and we've seen degradation of that way of life and that quality of life as a result of the decline of the returning salmon runs over the years. Tribes rely on the salmon for their sustenance and culture. Commercial fishermen and environmentalists have worked for years to bring the dams down in a region already suffering through intense drought and dwindling water supplies. 
In recent years, as many as 90% of the young salmon sampled tested positive for a disease that spreads when river flows are low. The issued statement cleared the way for public hearings on the document before a final draft is issued as soon as this summer. The demolition and habitat restoration plan would cost about $500 million. Dam removals could begin as early as next year. It would be the largest dam demolition project in U.S. history. Now, it's important to understand that these dams uh, serve a single purpose, and that is to produce uh, electricity. They, they exist for the sole purpose of uh, spinning turbines and generating electricity. Uh, they do not store water for agricultural purposes uh, or for industrial or municipal uses, uh, and they're not operated as flood control dams. Although there is some local opposition, like from those whose water is connected to a groundwater well, Bransom said they will be working with those communities to discuss the impacts of the project. He believes the project will have social and economic benefits. Bransom said they are working on the design to ensure that all regulators can see how the project would unfold. They are also informing them about the mitigation measures they are proposing in advance so that the regulators can consider their applications and prepare their permits. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. Heat waves are such a thing in California that lawmakers are now proposing to rank them as they do with the hurricane rating system. It would make California the first U.S. state to do so, along with early heat warnings. NTD's David Lamb reports. A lot of us know just how hot it gets when getting into a car that's been sitting out here for a few hours. And for some California residents, such intense heat can be dangerous. But some lawmakers are trying to make a change for a new system that will let Californians know just how dangerous the weather is. While heat doesn't have all the potential catastrophic damage like tornadoes or hurricanes, it's still the most dangerous. Since 1991, heat has been the top weather-related killer in the United States, according to averages from the National Weather Service. Under Assembly Bill 2238, California would have early warnings for extreme heat waves and a ranking system by January 2024. The NWS would provide weather data to the Environmental Protection Agency, which would be in charge of classifying and potentially naming heat waves. The bill was officially introduced by Assembly members Luz Rivas and Eduardo Garcia this month. California Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara said, just as we have air quality alerts, categories for tropical hurricanes, and red flag warnings for wildfires, California needs a way to warn our residents about extreme heat waves, which will only grow deadlier in the years ahead. The system may be similar to the hurricane ranking system, which categorizes hurricanes on a scale of 1 through 5, with 5 being the most intense in terms of wind speed. The NWS already has an experimental forecast called heat risk, with a ranking from 0 to 4. The new bill states that in 2020, temperatures in Los Angeles County reached as high as 121 degrees, causing an increase of 10 times the normal number of emergency room visits. Now, the bill proposal is waiting to be heard in committee in March. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Coming up, as Ukraine is fighting back against Russia, many are concerned about Taiwan. But now, how similar are the situations really? We'll break down the details. And a break from the past, Germany is significantly ramping up its defense spending in the face of Russia's war in Ukraine. That and more here on NTD News.
Taiwan is responding to concerns that it could become the next Ukraine. Officials on the island point out ways the two situations are different. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more on that. With Beijing's gaze planted on Taiwan, the island is watching Russia's war on Ukraine closely. Taiwan will also join the international community in levying economic sanctions against Russia. Many are now drawing parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan. Both face the threat of being taken over by powerful neighbors. Ukraine is already fighting back against Russia, while Taiwan is under military pressure from Beijing. But Taiwan officials may have a different view of that comparison. Taiwan, Taiwan and Ukraine are very different. We're very important in terms of the world's supply chain. Also, the geopolitical tensions and the geographic locations are different as well. Taiwan is critical to the global supply chain, especially when it comes to semiconductors or microchips. These tiny devices are the brains of all electronics, from fighter jets to iPhones. Without chips, modern life would not be possible. Taiwan dominates the chip manufacturing market. The island makes over 90 percent of the world's cutting-edge microchips, and the U.S. relies on Taiwan for its most advanced chips. What's more, Washington has a deeper interest in Taiwan compared to Ukraine. The U.S. maintains a security pact with Taiwan, and under it, America is committed to providing Taiwan with arms to protect itself from a Chinese invasion. But the U.S. doesn't have that kind of agreement with Ukraine. America's interest in Taiwan also has to do with its location. The island sits on a line of defense that's key to America's security, a chain of islands stretching from Japan to Malaysia. And this line of defense prevents Beijing from launching submarine-based nuclear missile attacks against the U.S. Without access to the deep waters beyond the island chain, the U.S. military would be able to quickly detect and neutralize Chinese attack subs. What's more, the U.S. has a much closer trade partnership with Taiwan. In 2020, Taiwan stands as America's ninth largest trading partner, with over $100 billion in two-way trade. Compare that to Ukraine, America's 67th largest trading partner, with a trade volume of just over $3 billion. Washington also had a hand in helping Taiwan transform into a democracy. In the 1950s, U.S. aid made up about 10 percent of Taiwan's GDP. The U.S. opened up its market to Taiwanese exports, helping the island to speed up its economy. Now, Taiwan's GDP per capita totals over half of the United States, over $30,000. That's compared to Ukraine at a little over $3,000. Lastly, the geography. Taiwan and mainland China are separated by a strait, stretching over 100 miles wide. But there's no such barrier between Ukraine and Russia, as their shared border is entirely on land. China's reaction to the Ukraine crisis could put its citizens there in danger. Beijing put Ukraine evacuation plans on hold, telling some 6,000 Chinese citizens in Ukraine to wait until it's safe to leave. That message comes in stark contrast to Taiwan's quick actions, and the contrast is raising eyebrows. Here's more. Mainland Chinese citizens have been waiting for evacuation from the war-torn country of Ukraine. But 22 Taiwanese nationals got just that this weekend, having safely arrived in Poland. But how did the island pull it off? A charter bus, complete with the national flag of Taiwan on its window. 
According to media reports, Taiwan's government arranged for the bus just hours after Russia launched its invasion on Thursday. The bus arrived in Poland on Saturday after navigating traffic jams as thousands flee Ukraine. In contrast to Taiwan's quick response, China's state-backed Xinhua News Agency announced the country's first withdrawals from Ukraine Monday, but didn't give further details. Prior to that notice, Beijing's apparent inaction sent thousands of Chinese citizens inside Ukraine into a wave of panic last Thursday. Instead of a quick evacuation strategy, the Chinese embassy offered a piece of advice, telling its citizens in Ukraine to paste the Chinese flag on their cars, presumably for protection from armed attacks. But just a day later, the embassy reversed that message, urging its nationals in Ukraine to maintain friendly relations with the Ukrainian people, avoid disputes, and remind them not to display any identifying signs. This after potential backlash over China's reaction to the Russian invasion. Beijing, under its close ties with Moscow, has so far refused to condemn Russia or describe its actions as an invasion. China's state media has also adopted a seemingly pro-Russian viewpoint in its domestic coverage. What's more, Chinese social media has been flooded with pro-Russian, anti-Ukrainian sentiment. The saga was later picked up by Ukrainian media, further fueling suspicions against the Chinese community in the country. Chinese officials announced a hold on evacuation plans Saturday. And unlike nationals from many other countries, they did not receive instructions to leave the country before the invasion began. Before Russia declared war, Beijing pushed back on warnings from the U.S. that a Russian attack was imminent. In a twist, Chinese media outlets recently reported on what they described as a heroic attempt from Beijing to help evacuate Taiwanese nationals from Ukraine. But Taiwan officials didn't take kindly to the notion, responding that they already made arrangements for their citizens and have no need for China's overstepping. And Putin's war in Ukraine is reshaping Europe's post-World War II security policy. Over the weekend, Germany not only decided to send weapons to Ukraine, but also to double its defense budget. Allies have long criticized Germany for not playing a role on the world stage equal to its size as Europe's largest economy. This report comes from NTD's Eddie Aitken. Russian President Vladimir Putin's Ukraine invasion appears to have achieved what Western allies have long struggled to, getting Germany to step up as a global power with an assertive foreign policy backed by a strong military. Chancellor Olaf Scholz said during an emergency session of the lower House of Parliament on Sunday, Germany would supply Ukraine with a thousand anti-tank weapons and 500 Stinger surface-to-air missiles. With his invasion of Ukraine on Thursday, President Putin created a new reality. This reality demands a clear response. We've given one. It is seen as nothing less than a historic break with its post-World War II foreign policy not to send lethal weapons to conflict zones. In recent weeks, NATO allies have criticized Germany for refusing to send anything other than helmets to Ukraine. Schultz also announced a dramatic hike in military spending in view of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The 2022 federal budget will provide this special fund with a one-off sum of 100 billion euros. We will use the funds for necessary investments and defense projects. 
This would mean a doubling of last year's defense budget. After years of resistance amid criticism from NATO allies, Germany is meeting its NATO commitment of spending 2% of economic output on defense marks another paradigm shift. It's clear we need to invest significantly more in the security of our country in order to thereby protect our freedom and our democracy. These decisions come after Germany agreed to suspend the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and cut Russia off the SWIFT global payment system. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Refugees from Ukraine continue to arrive in neighboring countries. The EU's Home Affairs Commissioner says at least 400,000 Ukrainian refugees have entered EU territory so far. The Border Guard in Poland says more than 200,000 people have crossed from Ukraine into the country since the war began last Thursday. Here's NTD's Eddie Aitken with more. Many trains from Ukraine have been arriving in the Polish town of Szmetschul, bringing hundreds of refugees to safety. They are women and children, as Ukraine has stopped adult male citizens from leaving the country. Poland's territorial defense troops were on hand to help them with their journey. This lady came from Lviv. She says her journey was scary and dangerous. People are dealing with stress and distortion. And when people are scared, they become selfish and forget about everything. They are traumatized because they were on that train. Many told stories of scared crowds of people trying to leave Ukraine. In the morning, there is some shout, we will shout, and everyone run to buy some food, and uh, we hear some bomb everywhere. Firefighters gave out free food and hot drinks. Poland's border guard on Sunday said that more than 200,000 people crossed from Ukraine since Thursday, when Russia's invasion began. Waiting times to get across to Poland and elsewhere on Ukraine's borders with the EU are long, with some accounts of people waiting more than a day. On Sunday, two planes carrying humanitarian aid for Ukrainians left Athens, bound for Poland. Officials say they carried items such as blankets and food from the Greek armed forces. Our solidarity, our wishes, our prayers are with the Ukrainian people and our fellow Greeks living in Ukraine who have had tragic losses. Greece is also sending ammunition, rifles and missile launchers on military cargo planes. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Coming up in Barcelona, a major mobile fair is bringing your run-of-the-mill drink maker to a new level, featuring a robotic bartender. coffee machine is nothing new, but how about a robotic bartender? Well, it appears there's one at the Mobile World Congress Fair in Barcelona. NTD's Jenny Wu has more. A major wireless technology trade fair kicked off in Barcelona on Monday with increased attendance and more relaxed health and safety measures. To demonstrate the power of 5G connectivity, Spain's Telefonica demonstrated a raft of innovative applications for this growing technology, including the humanization of vending machines, a robot bartender. Thanks to 5G edge computing, we are increasing the capabilities from a robot that serves drinks. 
The robot uses Telefonica's 5G technology to prepare and serve juice, wine or cocktails to attendees. It can reply in several languages when greeting customers, responding to their orders and offer recommendations in the language that the customer has previously selected. The robot also uses facial recognition to remember and recognize people who come back to it, offering up drinks based on their previous order. And it uses computer vision cameras to allow the quality of the prepared product to be controlled in real time. Organizers of the technology fair hope to attract about 50,000 attendees to the Spanish city, making it one of the biggest physical events since the start of the pandemic. The event will run from February 28th to March 3rd. Chenny Wu, NTD News. People in Brazil are celebrating Carnival this week, but at a zoo in Rio de Janeiro, they're also celebrating something else. Happy birthday, Bocal. A Rio de Janeiro zoo is celebrating the 28th birthday of its female hippo on Monday. Today was a very special day. Today is the day to celebrate Bocão's birthday. She turned 28, so we had a whole party and treats for her birthday. Zoo personnel organized a frozen fruit cake made from Bocão's favorites, such as papaya and watermelon. The cake was frozen for a bit of relief amid the hot Rio weather. It's pretty hot in Rio de Janeiro, so we made this cake to cool her down. And Pocão was very kind because she shared her cake with the male hippo who lives with her. Right now it's summertime in Rio de Janeiro since it lies in the southern hemisphere. Temperatures can reach up to almost 100 humid degrees. Additionally, the birthday celebrations at the zoo are helping to raise awareness on hippo conservation. According to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, hippos are considered at risk of extinction. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.